the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back Thursday, April 14th, 2022. In regarding Elon Musk attempting to buy out a majority share of Twitter and the left liberal meltdown over it, allow me some latitude here as I, I don't think we are getting to the heart of it. Our greatest enemy is bad ideas, Chris Flannery of the Claremont Institute says in his most recent podcast on the American story. Yeah, and that's right. Name me a country or a revolution that succeeded basing itself on a bad idea. Of course, the whole notion of a bad idea requires of us to know the difference between a good idea and a bad idea, to be able to make a judgment about right and wrong, justice and injustice. And it is just those discernments that have not only been refused in our academic disciplines, but condemned by them. It's the notion of relativism. Who's to say what's right? Who's to say what's better? That has soaked up the thought processes and training in what we used to teach, which was never those questions, but rather what is right and what is better. It's a pretty fair summary of the academic push in America from about 1945 to about 1980. Then something eerie started to take root, and then yet something else again. The first thing was the absolutism and ardency that there was, in fact, a correct and right and just view of the world, and that it was this very notion that we cannot judge. We shouldn't be judgmental. We cannot make judgments. Non-judgmentalism, non-hierarchy of values or cultures, non-superlatives about arguments or thoughts became a certitude. And anyone who thought otherwise was thought and, deme- and deemed arrogant, elitist, culturally insensitive, requiring of consciousness raising. If it, was about, if it was about America or the West versus, say, Samoa or New Guinea, it was not only arrogant, it was culturally insensitive. Hold that thought. We'll return to it. Harry Jaffa put it this way. Why do we regard the slaughter by the Nazis of Jews and other inferior humans in the Holocaust as genocide, but not the slaughter of cattle? Why do we turn with horror from cannibalism, the eating of human flesh by human beings, but not the eating of beef or pork? Anthropologists love to note the variety of human customs as if that was an argument against identifying any moral customs as being more or less natural than any others. Why not New Guinea then? The late Michael Rockefeller is believed to have been eaten on an anthropological expedition there by other humans. But we remind ourselves of what we forgot or we should need to, namely what Lincoln and human reason taught, namely that slavery, its acceptance or non-acceptance by any particular culture or society in no way decides whether it is right or wrong. The reason slavery is wrong is that the slaves are members of the same species as ourselves. Rational, social, and political animals, and for such are the identifying characteristics of Homo sapiens. It's not murder or cannibalism to kill or eat cattle, and it is not theft to appropriate the labor of beasts or horses or oxen, for example. Calling men slaves or chattel, which is cattle, as they were called in the antebellum United States, 
is unnatural because the slaves were human beings possessing rational wills, something that a chattel, properly so-called, simply cannot possess. So take a moment perhaps to go and ask a relativist why slavery is or was wrong and see if they can even tell you that it was. That's why Harry Jaffa studied the Lincoln-Douglas debates so seriously and why I think we all may need to again as well. Two reasons here. Stephen Douglas would make the argument again and again that the rules that may be good for Illinois, given the climate, given the economy, given the natural resources, would not equally be true necessarily in, say, Mississippi, given that state's climate, economy, and natural resources, etc. Thus, Douglas's view of popular sovereignty, let the people of the territories vote however they want on accepting or rejecting slavery. For the most part, sure, Lincoln would argue, but not when it comes to redefining the fundamental basics of what a human being is and not consistent with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution for placing before a vote that exact determination over people who are not allowed to vote for or against it themselves. In other words, as Lincoln would put it, if we are good enough to govern ourselves with each other's consent, that is one thing, but we are not good enough to govern another without his consent. That is not democracy or republicanism. That is tyranny. In other words, yeah, Lincoln would make the case we have all kinds of rights, of course, but not the right to engage in fundamental wrong. Douglas rejoined, that is for the people of the territories to decide. And right there in that very debate, you get the entirety of the main thesis of Plato's Republic in the discussion of what is just or what is justice. Socrates' interlocutor, Thrasymachus, makes the argument that might makes right. The same argument as Douglas in the 19th century here, that justice is what the strongest or most powerful say or do, be it an individual or a majoritarian vote of certain people. So that is the argument pretty much that dominated academic thought since about the end of World War II through about 1980. We can't say for others what is right about their practices, slavery, cannibalism, sati, refusing women the right to go to school, etc., until and unless it offended but one parochial interest, for example, the feminists when it came to women in education, but then nothing else. Maybe we saw a bit of it with the forced covering of women too. But that, too, crashed into several debates among the left, as did female genital mutilation, because it backed naturally instinctive opposition into the corner of cultural supremacy or arrogance. This would explain why so few feminist organizations or other human rights organizations would have much to say over the past 20 or so years regarding things that take place against women and other cultures and why so much ire was poured out over George Bush and Donald Trump so much more than the mullahs of Iran or any other Islamic dictatorship. Let me put it squarely. When Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, then one of the fiercest presidents in Iranian history, went to speak at Columbia University a few years back, there was no protest. There were no arrests for disruption or anything else. There was no cancellation. When Bill Bennett and James Woolsey and Frank Gaffney and I went there to speak at Columbia two years earlier, or if any Republican in the United States Senate today went to speak at Columbia, we'd need mounds of security as we did when we went. And Republicans today probably would be told they could not hire enough security, so the event would have to be canceled. And that's what changed yet again. 
we went from relativism to a certainty of right, universal right, about some opinions or political perspectives that were deemed absolutely and unconditionally true, while others were deemed with the same certainty as absolutely and unconditionally false, namely anything the modern world would call conservative or Republican. Another example, Hillary Clinton can say with reckless abandon the 2016 election was fraudulent and stolen from her. Donald Trump will be impeached and thrown off social media for saying the same about an election four years later. January 6th, with one death, that being of a pro-Trump, excuse me, that being of a pro-Trump protester, unarmed and shot in the back, should be and will be an albatross against all Republicans, or now maybe whites, too. The 2020 riots in the name of left-wing causes, yielding 14 times the arrest, hundreds of millions of dollars more in property damage, and the deaths of 30 people will be ignored or dismissed. Memory hold. Recall Nancy Pelosi's answer about one such riot in Baltimore that year. She said, people will do what people will do. That's not her answer about January 6th, though, is it? Republicans are racist or worse for not voting for Katanji Brown-Jackson or racist and worse for raising her judicial philosophy and history. Nobody was wrong for slander upon slander and physical disruption upon physical disruption during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. In other words, relativism converted into absolute truths, but not on principles, but rather policies and politics. If you're not down with the global climate change movement, you are a science denier. If you are not down with all COVID restrictions in the name of whatever Anthony Fauci or the CDC proclaimed in a given week or month, you are a science denier. If you voted for a Republican, you're a bigot. If you are are a Republican or conservative wanting to speak on a campus, you will not be allowed. And if you are a conservative or even just an advocate of maybe something like children's mental health, you will be banned on Twitter. And if you want to buy Twitter and open it up to a freer exchange of ideas and not ban people based on their viewpoint, you are a dangerous oligarch. Because those ideas should never, cannot see the light of day. Conservative ideas and thoughts do not deserve to be on a level playing field with left-wing and liberal thoughts. My friend Ryan Williams at the Claremont Institute calls this regime hierarchy. We're going to have a lot more to say about that, but I would call it opinion and principle hierarchy. If a billionaire buys the Washington Post, as one did, no hay problema, so long as the billionaire is a left-winger like Jeff Bezos, and so long as he continues to abide the hierarchy of opinions and principles there. If a billionaire who doesn't buy lock, stock, and barrel the left-wing nostrums buys Twitter with one concern and one concern only to stop the censorship and deplatforming, That is cause for panic and meltdown. Free speech, competition of ideas, and even playing field, this is what cannot be tolerated because opinion and principle hierarchy. Conservative ideas are sometimes tolerated here and there, but they do not deserve a debate against liberal and left-wing ideas because they are akin to debating something the left has been working on for years, making conservative thought the equivalent of fascist or Nazi thought in the popular mind. Or the latest white supremacist thought. The irony is every media organization that ever gets sued invokes the landmark case of New York Times versus Sullivan. 
This is the case that no liberal or lefty has read, or seems to have, or agrees with anymore, even as their treasured temples, like the New York Times and Washington Post or other social media, rely upon its holding almost all the time. I've quoted you William Brennan's words from that opinion before. Here are some words from the concurrence of Justices Goldberg and Douglas, equally as liberal justices as Brennan. Quote, the theory of our Constitution is that every citizen may speak his mind and every newspaper express its views on matters of public concern and may not be barred from speaking or publishing because those in control of government think that what is said or written is unwise, unfair, false or malicious. In a democratic society, one who assumes to act for the citizens in an executive, legislative, or judicial capacity must expect that his official acts will be commented upon and even criticized. Such criticism cannot, in our opinion, ever be muzzled or deterred. Close quote. That's exactly what has the employees at Twitter melting down, because to return to what I said I would, something else replaced and trumped politics in our pedagogy about a generation ago. We used to joke about getting rewards for showing up or just participating. We used to joke about calling someone a winner or saying the award goes to. Those changes, those eliminations of superlatives and qualifications were replaced in order to nurture feelings. And thus, now, feelings trump natural or any other kind of right or thought. It's not what someone said that may get them in trouble. It's how they made you feel. Tell me that's not true to any of you who've hired millennials in the last several years. And that, too, is how we got to the phrase, my truth, or at least got to the phrase, my truth, as having any meaning of worth whatsoever. One would, one would used to say, who cares what your truth is? We care about the truth. Today, we no longer say that, for that would diminish the individual's feelings, personhood, and claim to rightness based on their own feelings about any given matter. Long and short of it, we don't have a country governed or animated by self-evident truths anymore. We have a country governed or animated by 331 million different versions of the truth, including John Wilkes Booth's definition. And we go back full circle then to Stephen Douglas as much as Thrasymachus, the idea being that might is what makes right. A polity that thinks that can do anything it wants and thus can do anything. Caution. Those who believe in coercive elimination of dissent will soon find themselves eliminating dissenters. That was true of fascist and communist regimes on both fronts. The notion that we can do anything, including the redefinition of man or person, and the notion that we can silence those who dissent, in all cases, it leads to the same end, elimination of people. It used to be different here, which is why Lincoln answered Douglas as he answered Thrasymachus and as we answered King George. It is right that makes might and not the other way around. The problem is... We just don't know what right is anymore. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. I have a lot to do with you today. I want to give you our number two if you want to bring anything up or add to anything we're doing on this end, 602-508-0960. Uh, this, this I just wanted to do real quick and get out of the way. 
then I wanted to move on to something really interesting that our friend John Gabriel wrote. Uh, but I, I did want to give you this uh, this this. People sometimes ask, you know, what what can I give to people to you know show them our our our, our point, our case. As the Biden administration is blaming Russian. President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine for all the terrible inflation news we were subjected to this week. Ben Shapiro writes, and you can get this at Real Clear Politics, that uh, White House Press Secretary uh, Jen Psaki announced we expect the March CPI headline inflation to be extraordinarily elevated due to Putin's price hike and blamed gas prices alone for the spike. That, of course, is ludicrous. In February of 2021, that is to say a little over a year ago, the month after Biden took office, the inflation rate was just 1.7 percent. In April of that same year, last year, it spiked to 4.2 percent. By May, the inflation rate was 5 percent. It remained in that range until October of just this past year when it spiked to 6.2 percent. It then spiked again to 6.8 percent in November and 7.5 percent in January. In other words, the problem ain't Putin. This was all before Putin went into the Ukraine. It also isn't supply chain issues alone. The core inflation rate in Europe has remained well below that of the United States. The harmonized index of consumer prices was 5.9% in February of 2022 in the Europe area, compared with 7.9% in the United States, two points lower in Europe than here. So what is the problem? The problem lies in loose monetary policy from the Federal Reserve for years on end, combined with wildly irresponsible economic policy from the Biden administration. Begin with the Federal Reserve. Between 2008 and 2015, the federal fund's effective rate was essentially zero. It rose to 2.3 percent in May 2019, then dove back down to zero amidst the COVID recession. This means that the Federal Reserve essentially subsidized borrowing and spending for years on end. But the problem didn't stop there. During the COVID downturn, the Federal Reserve purchased some $4 trillion in assets, injecting liquidity into the economy in the mistaken belief that the problem was a lack of demand, not lack of supply. This superheated the economy as supply chains attenuated and prices rose dramatically. All this was accomplished by ridiculously spend thrift policies from the Biden administration. The Trump administration, along with a bipartisan contingent in Congress, spent nearly endless amounts of money as the American economy was subject to an artificial coma. But the Biden administration entered office with a working vaccine and COVID-19 on the wane and then proceeded to inject trillions more in spending into the economy. In 2020, the government spent approximately $6.6 trillion in federal outlays. In 2021, the year of recovery, the government spent $7.2 trillion. The spending was wildly unjustifiable. With vaccines available, people going back to work, the Biden administration had a responsibility to leave the economy alone. Instead, it insisted on reshaping the economy according to whim. As Ezra Klein lamented to former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, there was a reason the Biden administration wanted to run the economy hot. It felt, finally, like we were reaching people at the margins. We were putting a lot of firepower in to do that, and then for that to turn into this horrifying inflation problem, which is now eating back those wage increases, I recognize the world doesn't have to please me. It is maddening. Yes, 
Reality is maddening, but not quite as maddening as the predictable results of ignoring reality and then lying about it in order to blame someone else. Little Frank Sinatra there doing a little Joni Mitchell, right? Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. I want to spend some time with something John Gabriel wrote, our friend John Gabriel, uh, over at Ricochet, his website. Um, it's it, it gets to something deep a lot of you have called about and written me about having to do with fighting, being a fighting, a muscular conservatism, if you will. He writes, what happened to that guy? A lot of us have asked this question in the past few years about columnists, pundits, and thinkers we've always agreed with, only to see them taking a wildly different tack. Next, we'll ask, did I change or did they? I know I've changed quite a bit, but to see influential conservatives pushing the conservative case for voting Democrat or promoting CRT or queer theory or censoring Republican, etc., remains tough to stomach. Many blast these former conservatives on social media, but that's never been my style. This is John Gabriel. I expect people to disagree with me on most issues. A round of insults won't change their minds anyway. Our discourse is too toxic as it is, so I'd rather promote the good and beautiful than curse the infidel. Yet I can't help wonder what happened to so many influential commentators. Trump broke them is an easy out yet doesn't explain the ideological 180-degree turn they've taken. I've begun to settle on another cause, especially among newly wokish Christian writers. A recent interview tied a bow on my thoughts. <coughs> Excuse me. Author Paul Kingsnorth has made a fascinating journey over the past few years. He rose to prominence as a dedicated environmentalist, calling for an end to the capitalism that was destroying the planet. Raised an atheist, he later sought answers in Buddhism and Wicca. Then, almost against his will, he entered the Orthodox Church. By then, he was living a humble life in rural Ireland with his family and began reconsidering all of his beliefs. This week, toward the end of an interview with one Jonathan Pagyao, he said the following, quote, we can't afford to be respectable. Christ was not respectable. None of his disciples were respectable. You can't be conformed to the world because this is where the world is going. You have to be prepared to be all things that Christ told you you were going to be. Rejected and humiliated and attacked and all the rest of it. Not for the sake of it, just because you're being a contrarian. It's really hard, but you have to say, if I'm going to walk in the direction I need to walk in, I'm going to be metaphys excuse me, metaphorically wearing rags, or maybe actually wearing rags. There's a lot of renunciation that has to come. That will be different for different people, but that's the hardest bit for those of us who come from comfortable countries. There's a renunciation involved, whether it's reputational or physical, or material. And that's what the interesting people always do. The marginal people who can bring the wisdom back into the center. There's a need to renounce and to walk away before you can see what the next stage of the path, path is. Close quote. Back to John Gabriel. This, of course, applies to Christians, but also to anyone seeking capital T, truth. 
Going against the grain is essential when the grain is heading the wrong way. Disputing the official narrative soon follows. Standing athwart the current thing and rolling your eyes comes next. The resulting mockery will be swift. Why didn't you post the black square on Instagram? Why aren't you wearing a mask in your profile pic? Why do you have a Ukrainian flag next to your screen name? All the respectable people do that. When you shrug off that feedback, you'll be labeled a racist, an anti-vax Putin fan. Some got offended by this treatment. The rest of us are bored by it. Perhaps if you made a lot of money, sold a lot of books, need to curry favor with media moguls, and have grown accustomed to a certain level of wealth and influence, these attacks spook you. After all, you have to pay for the house, the cabin, and your kid's private school. Or you're less materialistic, yet thrive on the speaking invites, the conferences, and the Beltway social connections. You think the primary goal of life is to be nice and respectable. Abandoning that belief horrifies you. Let me take the quick break and come back to what John Gabriel is getting at with his conclusion when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. Their fruits and veggies are what I take every single day, just one daily dose. The fruits and veggies are made from fresh, whole produce. Through their advanced cold vacuum process, the vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients of the fruits and veggies are preserved so that you get that vital nutrition in each capsule. A Ten servings worth of fruits and vegetables in one daily dose. Been taking it every day for about three years now, and I have to tell you, I think it's responsible for keeping me healthy for these past three years. Used to get sick when the seasons changed. Not since taking Balance of Nature. You'll know the difference right away. If you check out their fruits and veggies at balanceofnature.com, please make sure to use discount code BALANCE. That's balanceofnature.com, their fruits and veggies, and discount code BALANCE. All right, John Gabriel was uh, making a point uh, that we can no longer afford to be respectable. He writes, the rest of us no longer care about being respected. Who are the rest of us? Those of us that uh, you know can afford uh, can afford to, to 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 explain our convictions or to debate against the common and conventional culture. Because the rest of us no longer care about being respected, especially by people who despise us. Who are you being respected by? We should expect the insults, the bad faith arguments, and the attempts at cancellation. When attacked on social media, the only passion I can gin up is clicking the mute button. In the near future, most of us expect the attacks to get worse. I've assumed for years I'd be kicked off social media, and I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. That's John Gabriel. I have been. Who knows? In five years or five months, we could lose access to our finances. The stuff I write is worse than honking a horn in Ottawa. And look what happened to the truckers. We live in a censorious, conformist age, and I remain terrible at following orders. So I expect the worst and speak my peace anyway. Because when you see the world going to hell in a handbasket, someone has to speak their mind. What's needed today are truth-tellers. We can no longer afford to be respectable. Truth-telling. Truth-telling. See what happens when you try it. Just see. Might you be canceled? Yes. Might we be able to do something about it? Tell enough truth and the answer to that, too. 
is yes. Some of it includes standing up to all the loved people, all the lovely people, or all the people that respect the loved and lovely people. Think about Hollywood for a moment. Guy Benson. Guy Benson is a great writer. He's over at Town Hall, part of our family here. And he was just going through in a recent column the Hollywood reaction, Disney Plus reaction to the Florida legislation that stopped and prevents the sexualization of five-year-olds. And he was talking about how at the Oscars they made fun of Florida, how almost everyone in Hollywood has stood up against Florida and Ron DeSantis and the legislation. We say gay is their phraseology. But exceptions seem to apply to them, don't they? Yes, they do. As Guy Benson points out, here's a story from Variety magazine just from last month. References to gay relationships in the movie Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, were edited out of that movie by Warner Brothers for the film's release in China. Only six seconds of the movie's 142-minute runtime were removed. Dialogue that was edited out allowed it, alluded to the romantic past between male characters Dumbledore, Jude Law, and Grindelwald, Mads Mikkelsen. Harry Potter author J.K. JK Rowling revealed Dumbledore was gay in 2009, but the movies had never explicitly referenced the character's sexuality until this third Fantastic Beasts entry. Warner Brothers accepted China's request to remove the six seconds from the movie. The dialogue lines, because I was in love with you and the summer Gellert and I fell in love, were cut from the secrets of Dumbledore release. The rest of the film remained intact. As a studio, we're committed to safeguarding the integrity of every film we release, and that extends to circumstances that necessitate making nuanced cuts in order to respond sensitively to a variety of in-market factors, Warner Brothers said in a statement to Variety. Our hope is to release our features worldwide as released by their creators, but historically we face small edits made in local markets. In the case of Fantastic Beasts, a six-second cut was requested and Warner Brothers accepted those changes to comply with the local requirements. But the spirit of the film remains intact. We want audiences everywhere in the world to see and enjoy this film, and it's important to us that Chinese audiences have the opportunity to experience it as well, even with these minor edits. Really? Nuanced. Minor edits. Necessitated by local requirements. Specifically, the only thing cut in this, what was it, 146-minute movie, was the reference to gays. It's the only thing that was cut. It was deliberately cut. It was asked for by the communists of China, and Warner Brothers couldn't have done it quickly enough. Just a nuanced minor edits necessitated by local requirements. But don't worry, the spirit of the film, with the LGBT references carefully excised, remains in place. And voila, mission accomplished. The film debuted in China before it was released in the United States, meaning that the Don't Say Gay version appeared on silver screens over there before Americans could see the uncensored original here. And it won the Chinese box office in its opening weekend, and the studios raked in, the studio raked in millions. 
Let me pause here for a moment and just record that isn't this the exact complaint that civil rights movements, whatever the cause, whatever the case, have been making is that there's not enough of X portrayed, not enough of X seen as, I don't know, common or normal, not enough of X for people to look up to and feel that they too are representative or represented and comfortable in the display, in the collection, in the portrayal, in the art. Isn't that the whole point? Wasn't that the whole point of every argument on behalf of affirmative action? The idea that you just have more of the entire fabric of America so it looks more like the entire fabric of America or the world or the world. And by deliberately eliminating one group, what is it you're saying? You are saying we won't say gay if the money to be made is big enough, large enough, gross enough. And if the money to be lost is big enough, large enough, gross enough. These Hollywood types, man, I'll tell you, people like to trace it to uh, chalk it up to hypocrisy. It's not hypocrisy. It's not hypocrisy. They don't believe what they say at all. Not at all, unless they can use it as a wedge and as a hammer against conservatives and Republicans. They don't even believe it themselves. They certainly won't apply it to themselves. And applying a moral to yourself is the first test of how sincere you actually are. They are nothing but insincere. And, may I say, bigoted. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I've been getting a bunch of emails uh, based on my monologue. Am I against Elon Musk buying Twitter if he can? No, I'm not against it. I'm not against it. I'm not against it at all. Uh, in fact, I hope he does it and rescues it. But I don't want us to be so jumping for joy over this as the victory that we were looking for. It is a bit of a pyrrhic victory when we have to rely on one super wealthy man to save free speech in America. I think there's another thing going on, too. There's a tendency particularly more so on our side than theirs, to rush and embrace just a little too quickly. The left has a skepticism that we don't. We will rush and embrace far more quickly someone for saying one right thing than they will. And I give them credit for that circumspection. People who ran to and embraced, you know, Bill Maher, you're going to be let down, folks. You're going to be let down because he agrees with you on free speech. You're going to be let down because he is condemning Republicans left and right on his show. I wonder if Elon Musk might be the same. This is not a conservative man. This is a man who believes in free speech, who has some economic libertarian values, but not exclusively. This is a man who is on board with the global warming stuff. This is a man who is at various times in, of life, in his life said he's a certain kind of a socialist. This is a man who has supported the universal basic income. Let's just be a little bit more careful because the moment we embrace him and throw him at our opponents 
and then he says something we don't agree with, and they throw him back at us, where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? Here's here's the test I often like to apply. It comes from a, uh, ironically enough, an old Robert De Niro movie called Ronin, and it's this test. If there's doubt, there's no doubt. I want you to think about that in the context, too, of the political season we're in, particularly when it comes to who to choose for your primary political candidate, primary meaning in the primaries. If there's doubt, there is or should be no doubt. So, yes, I hope Elon Musk buys Twitter. I hope he opens it up. I like the owning of the libs on this. I love the owning of them saying start your own company or you can't touch our free speech notions. We're a private company. Okay, I love all that. I really do. Just let's understand this victory came only because we had one very wealthy person willing to step up, and that's going to come far and few between. Note I said one very wealthy person stepping up. I did not say one very wealthy conservative person. Don't set yourself up for ultimate failure based on a temporary victory. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.